Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Anthony Suka on the topic The Gift of God's Love, Suffering. This April 2008 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Anthony Suka is an IT support analyst, one-time president of the Catholic Society of St. Peter at Sydney University, and since the age of 14 has been a quadriplegic. Okay, now before I begin, um, I'd just like to mention a few things. This is a topic that really sh shouldn't really be spoiled by too, many, too much intellectualism because it is a matter of life and experience. There is an infinite source of intellectualism involved, however, early church fathers, the scriptures... I will try and keep a balance between the two, but I'll be reading a lot as well, so bear with me while I do. I'll be drawing a lot tonight from an apostolic letter by uh, recent Pope John Paul II. He wrote an apostolic letter called um, Salvafici Dolores, which uh, the Christian meaning of suffering. I'll be using a lot of that. I mean, that alone, if, if I were to bring that here tonight and simply read that, that would that would cover pretty much everything plus a hundred of what I'm going to say today. So if you can ever get your hand on that apostolic letter and have a read of it, you'll do yourself a justice. The title of the talk, A Gift of God's Love, Suffering. A lot of people will obviously consider that an oxymoron, if you would. In recent days, I've been frantically trying to put together this talk at work. And I've had people walking behind me, a lot of non-Christians, and they've noticed the big bold writing on my monitor, gift of God's love and, love and suffering. They go, you're right, Tony, what are you writing about? I go, well, you know, I'm writing about suffering, the Christian meaning of suffering. They go, well, you Christians believe suffering is good. I go, well, actually, we do. And the look on their faces is astounding. When you say suffering is good... I think it actually scares people and it makes us Christians look a little bit weird, almost sadistic. However, it is actually a gift of God's love and tonight I'm hoping that I can show you from not just my experience but hopefully intellectually, which I'm really not good at sometimes, that it actually is. Before I begin though, a few misconceptions that I want to put aside, a few points. Most of us, we grow up in society in a, a reward-punishment system. We do good, we're rewarded with good. We do bad, we're punished. And we take this idea and we try to apply it to God and our spiritual life. Well, it doesn't always work. Actually, it almost never works. Because some of the times when we suffer and when we experience pain, it's not actually because we've done something bad. Sometimes it could be because we're doing something good. However, that doesn't mean that suffering and pain can't also be a punishment for individual sin. And I'll get back to that later in the talk. Another misconception, we have a tendency to decide, think that if I wake up one morning and decide to follow Christ, be a good Catholic, that from there on in, it's going to be all smooth sailing. Well, that's another misconception because following Christ necessarily means bearing your cross. That's a given. It's not an option. I want you to picture, just keep this idea in your mind and I'm going to get back to it and explain it further later. I want you to think of this. Why does every Catholic church, well, these days it's not every Catholic church, but why do most good Catholic parishes have the crucifix with the body of our Lord on it at ev in every church above the altar. Think about that. Why does every church constantly have this huge crucifix on top of the altar? Keep that in your mind because I'm going to get back to it. We're often tempted in our lives to say, well, why me? When we experience suffering. Why me? Well, there is a simple response to that. I'll get back to that again. I'm going to be introducing a few ideas and then elaborating them on 
elaborating further on in my talk. No one wants to be in pain. That's a given. No one wants to experience suffering. And it, it is part of, it is a moral obligation to help people who are in pain to the best of our efforts. Uh, somebody's sick, don't say, oh, you know what, I'm not going to give you Panadol. You just enjoy your headache. No, that's not right. Somebody's in pain and you have the ability to help them to the best of your efforts, you do so. You're morally obliged to do so. However, there are times where you can't actually do anything. That the person has no choice but to suffer. I've, draw, I've used a lot of material written by a father, John Flader, from the Catholic Adult Education Centre. So if you've ever heard him give this kind of talk, you'll probably pick up some things that you've heard before. Some people have this idea that we're not meant to suffer. That's where we get the whole push in our society for euthanasia. I don't want to suffer. If I know I'm going to suffer, I want to end it now. Kill myself. Some people actually find that reasonable and a logical response to suffering. Most Christians, though, good Christians, wouldn't, won't even think about it. Hopefully, by tonight, you'll understand why. The full meaning of suffering, the true and perfect meaning, is, can only be found in Christian revelation. The Catholic faith has so much to offer us with regards to this teaching as, and the, understanding the value of suffering. Now, again, I'm going to just a word of caution here. A lot of what I say tonight, uh, hopefully, you know, it won't be a surprise to you, but a lot of what I will say is going to sound somewhat surprising. Right? We live in, in, in a society plagued by hedonism. Now, we live for the purpose of being happy and self-indulgent. I wrote that in the, the blurb if you got the email. You know, it's hard to explain to somebody how suffering has value when we're immersed in a society where it con the constant drive and the constant idea is that I should do whatever I can to be happy and never suffer. So this might sound a bit weird, if you would. There are a few co I'll just tell you now just a brief itinerary of what I'm going to go through. First of all, I'm going to talk about the nature of suffering. Then I'm going to talk about the Christian meaning of life. Because if we're going to understand what suffering is, we need to understand what us Christians teach life is all about. Then I'm going to talk about the suffering of our Lord and His, and the, his redemption, and our redemption, sorry. And finally, I'm going to get to the point, the effects of this gift, suffering, that we receive in our lives. Now, I'll start off with the nature of suffering. Suffering. Now, I'm going to draw a bit from Father uh, Flada here again from his talk. A bit of, a bit of uh, trivia here. The word suffer, it's actually a, a derived from a verb in Latin, suffero. It means to take up, to submit to, or undergo to bear. Right? Suffering is not something that we do, something we experience. Right? It's passive in its very nature. Uh, another, there is another Latin verb. It's actually, where is it here? Patio. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. But it also means the same thing. Patio is where we get the word patient. It literally means one who suffers or passion. That's also derived from patio. In its, it's a very in Latin. It's original. The original verb. It's very broad. In other words, it's simply something you bear or something you experience. But we understand suffering as one who bears pain, and that's what we're talking about when we say suffering, enduring pain. Um, just on a side note here, and I will again quote from that apostolic letter, Salvatici Dolores. Suffering is, in, in, in Christian revelation, is understood as the... Oh, sorry, my 
It's when we experience evil. That's what suffering is. Now, I'm going to quote from the apostolic letter now. It says, Man suffers whenever he experiences any kind of evil. Now, again, we might ask, what is evil? The Christian understanding of evil is not like other cultures. Other cultures teach that nature, life, is intrinsically evil. You know, and that mankind should be liberated from nature, from, from, from the world, because it's all evil. Well, as Christians, the Catholic Church does not teach that at all. The Church teaches us the, the fundamental goodness of everything. Because our Lord created nature, created the world, so it's all good. So when we say evil, it is a deprivation, a distortion of good. So we, we say that when we suffer, we experience evil. No? But in that sense where it's a deprivation of good. Now, a few points. When we suffer, it's... Okay, I'm just going to be a bit of a tongue twister here. We, let's just say we believe we ought to have something. Right? For example, a labourer, he works a day's wage, he ought to be paid. When he's not paid, he's experienced a, a, a deprivation of what was owed to him, so he suffers. Okay? Are you with me so far? <laughs> now, so that's what we mean by experiencing evil. When we miss, when we, something that we ought to have is not given to us in strict justice. But I need to here clarify the word ought. There are some goods which are, which are due to us in strict justice. As I explained about the labourer who works, he, he ought to be paid. But most other goods are not due to a person in strict justice. For example, me, for my eyesight, I don't ought to have eyesight. Eyesight is a gift. Life itself is a gift. I don't ought to have life. It is something that God has given me as a gift. This brings us to a very important point. The objective and the subjective nature of suffering. For example, if there are two two people who have no eyesight. Objectively, they're both in the same situation, right? From you, you, you can look at them and see that they're both blind, they're both suffering. But person A never thought to himself that he ought to see. In other words, he's always known that his eyesight was a gift. And losing his eyesight wasn't as, as painful as person B, who thought to himself that I ought to see, that I deserve to see. So both of them objectively have the same suffering, but the first person is obviously bearing it much easier than the second person who thought that he actually has the right to see. I want to mention this story here. I just read it out to you. It was in the paper. It's actually Father Flatter found it in the paper. It says, a Catholic priest in his 30s was left paraplegic as a result of a car accident. In spite of having lost movement from his waist down, and he suffered several years of rehabilitation, he's now returned to giving ethics classes at a university. When a reporter asked him how he viewed his situation, he replied, I feel like a millionaire that's lost a thousand dollars. Okay? So, do you see what I mean by the subjective and the objective view of suffering? That this priest, to the people around him, to, all, to society, he's lost a lot. He's lost the ability to walk. But to himself, he never thought that he ever deserved to walk. He's always considered he's been able to walk as a gift. So, obviously to him, it wasn't a major loss. Now, 
the classic example, the quintessential paradigm of suffering, if you would, is the story of Job in the, in the Bible. Are we all familiar with the story of Job? I'll quickly go through it. Job was righteous before God. Now, old Nick, as far as lady would call him, the devil, <laughs> wanted to sort of tell God that the only reason Job loves you is because you're so good to him. You've given him money, you've given him family, and basically God gives the devil permission to take everything away from him, even his own health. Now, after all was taken away, all his possessions, even he had children and they all died and all his cattle, all his sheep, all his camels, all disappeared. The classic quote, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, again, I'm emphasising the point that when we look at what we have as something that's been given as a gift, when it's taken away, we can bear it with, obviously, much more patience than people who think we deserve what we have. I want to also draw the distinction here between physical and mental suffering. Physical suffering is, you know, obviously, is pleasant in this term, but mental suffering can be a broad range of things. Actually, I find that most people who have turned their back on the Catholic faith is as a result of mental suffering. Right. Oh, my husband divorced me. I don't want anything to do with the church anymore because they won't let me remarry. Right. They suffer as a consequence of moral, uh, moral suffering. Right. I also want to make one last point on, on, the, on the nature of suffering. God is not the cause nor the source of any evil. It's very important. God permits evil and permits it for one reason only. To bring about a greater good. And I've, I've actually given this talk in little preview stages a lot to school students. I obviously don't read and try to give a lot of scripture or church, early church father quotes. But when I do, I always tell people, what is the greatest evil of all time? We look at the crucifixion of Christ. God incarnate, creator of the world, tortured and murdered by his creation. That is, without doubt, the greatest evil of all time. But from it, came the greatest good of all time, the redemption of mankind. So God allows evil for the sole purpose of, from it, drawing a greater good. Now I'm going to move on to the Christian meaning of life. It's important that we understand the Christian meaning of life before we can actually understand how suffering applies to our lives. Take you back to the beginning. Right? In God's original plan, Adam and Eve, Genesis, suffering never existed. Adam and Eve, a man was created to live, work, with, free from suffering, and after time on earth, re, uh, join, join God in heaven. Otherwise, if they rejected, spend an eternity in hell. That was the original plan. Man was never meant to suffer. We know the story of Eve and Adam and Eve's disobedience. We're all familiar with that. Eve picked the apple, sin entered into the world. And then, what do we have? What's the punishment given out to Eve? Well, I'll just quote Eve, obviously. The first one was, she would now experience pain in childbirth. Adam, the punishment in the scripture was that he would now, you know, the, 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 okay, I'll just quote it here. The very ground will be under a curse so that it would yield thorns and thistles and not only by the sweat of his brow would he be able to earn his bread. 
Moreover, another consequence of this sin, from dust you came, to dust you shall return. Man would now die. So, suffering is a consequence of original sin. It's as simple as that. Okay? We're good so far? Sorry if I'm rushing a bit, but a lot to cover. From that moment on, suffering has been part and parcel of life. No one can avoid it. Each and every one of us will at one point in our lives experience some form of suffering. So it's very important to understand that suffering does have value and that there is a, there is a reason why we suffer. So I'm here tonight trying to hopefully help you understand a little bit and then you could probably just go on your own and try to discover a bit more. So I'll go back to my original point. I mentioned earlier that suffering can also be a punishment for individual sin. Um, if we take into account that God is a just judge who rewards good and punishes evil, I mean, if we look at our legal system, you do good, you're rewarded. You do bad, you're punished. And that's, that's our legal system. So it also applies also in strict justice to God and man. If we read the Old Testament, it's easy to conclude that through the, the entire, uh, if you would, the history of the Israelite people, its, the, it's chronology is God punished Israel when they did something bad and he rewarded them when they did something good. And if you read the book of Deuteronomy in there, there's, today I place before you a blessing and a curse. And then it says, if you do good, you, God will reward you. If you do bad, God will punish you. So, there is that idea that suffering and pain can be a consequence of disobedience, of our individual sin. But the, does this actually mean that every form of suffering can be seen as a punishment for a particular individual sin? No, definitely not. Babies suffer and even die. And they, as we know, babies commit no sin. I mean, the classic, our lady, free from sin, Blessed Virgin Mary, free from sin, and yet she suffered extraordinary pain, seeing her own son crucified in front of her. Now, in cases such as these, when obviously innocent people suffer, the mystery, the mystery of suffering is seen in its absolute stark reality. And it's important again for us to understand it. The answer to the mystery of suffering and the innocent suffering in particular is given by the most innocent person ever to live on earth who at the same time experienced the greatest suffering. Of course, our Lord, Jesus Christ. I'm going to move on now to talk about the suffering of Jesus and redemption. In his conversation with, in, in the scriptures, when our Lord speaks to Nicodemus, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's St. John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 16. It was the love of God for man that moved him to send his only begotten Son to earth to redeem mankind from original sin and thus overcome suffering and death and open the way to eternal life. But it's important to understand. Okay, where was I? Uh, last point. So our Lord came to free us from, su from suffering and to conquer original sin. Jesus understood human suffering. He lived on earth as a man for 33 years. He experienced everything we, we experience. I'll again quote from uh, Salvivich Dolores, which is the uh, apostolic letter of John Paul II. 
He experienced, he experienced tiredness, hunger, thirst, misunderstanding, the betrayal of Judas and the defection of other apostles, the injustice of his condemnation and especially the agony and, and his passion. He truly knew suffering in his flesh. Christ knew suffering. Right? He understood, he not only understood, sorry, he experienced the worst of sufferings, the agony of his passion, the death on the cross. He also had compassion on people who suffered. I mean, if you read the Gospels, he healed the sick, he, he consoled the afflicted, fed the hungry. I mean, just, you know, just, if you just casual peruse of the Bible, you would see all the good that our Lord done. But it's very important to mention this. He came to free us from suffering. He did not come to free us from suffering in its temporal dimension. Now, when I say temporal dimension, I'm talking about suffering that's temporary. What we experience in our physical flesh. Christ came to save us from the sufferings of hell. Big difference. He came so that we would not perish eternally into the fires of hell and not to free us from, if you would, our whinging and whining of physical suffering. He can see the big picture. We need to strive to do the same. There is... uh, a quote in the book of Job, it alludes to this liberation, if you would, from eternal suffering versus temporal. Where he says, Job, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last I shall see God. In the midst of his sufferings, Job said this. And again, towards the end, after... The devil had taken away his money, his children, everything. At the end, he took away pretty much his health. Job was in extreme agony. And in that agony, what does he say? For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last I shall see God. Do we see here the distinction between temporal suffering and eternal suffering? Job understood that what he was going through now was going to end. And that after that, he would see God. He would find God. What he's going through now is temporary. Jesus accomplished this definitive liberation of mankind from suffering, as we know, by the intense, indescribable sufferings he experienced on the cross with his death. Jesus attacked the cause of suffering. Remember what was the cause of suffering? Original sin. Atoned as the God-man for all of our sins and opened up for all, hum- for all mankind the possibility of entering into heaven. Now here's a sentence that I want you to remember. Now, if you pretty much ignore everything I've said thus far, remember this. The key to understanding the great mystery of Christ's suffering for the salvation of mankind and for man's suffering is love. In the words I quoted before in St. John's Gospel about for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, Christ suffered out of love for mankind. In his own words, This is our Lord speaking. No greater love does a man have than that to lay down his life for his friends. Love. That's what drove him to suffer the excruciating passion and death on the cross. Love. And if we are to understand the Christian meaning of suffering, it comes down to that word again. Love. It is love that gives suffering meaning. 
God revealed His love for man by suffering for us. And man's own suffering has meaning when united by love with the cross of Christ. Again, I'm going to quote from the apostolic letter. Human suffering has reached its culmination in the passion of Christ. And at the same time, it has entered into a completely new dimension and a new order. It has been linked to love. To that love of which Christ spoke to Nicodemus. To that love which creates good, drawing it out by means of suffering. Just as the supreme good of redemption of the world was drawn from the cross of Christ. And from that cross constantly takes its beginning. I have some profound words by late Pope John Paul II. But it comes down again that the entire mystery of Christ's suffering comes down to love. His love for us and to free us from the pains of death, original sin and eternal punishment in hell. Love is only seen to be genuine when it's manifested in sacrifice. If there's no sacrifice, then there's no true love. Love comes, if you would, to its perfection in sacrifice. An important point. Christ's suffering and death were followed by the resurrection. Although we sometimes, when we experience suffering, we tend to get caught in a broken record. We don't see that there is any possible way, any possible light, if you would, at the end of this tunnel, this darkness which we're experiencing in the moment of suffering. It's not something that you know we deliberately do, although sometimes in our weakness, I mean, hey, I'm guilty number one, sometimes suffering can be so overwhelming that we fail to see that there could be any good derived from this. There is absolutely no light at the end of the tunnel. But we should always remember, following the death of our Lord comes His resurrection from the dead. We should always remember, always keep in mind that whatever we experience here on earth, no matter the pain, no matter the suffering, that will all end with death, our death. After which, the possibility of heaven or hell. Earthly suffering is very, very temporary. But again, when we are suffering, we don't really see that. We can't really appreciate or compare our earthly lives with eternity. To grasp the concept of eternity, I've always used this quote which I've heard several times. If you come to St. Michael's, you'll hear this oftentimes. Like the little bird that travels to the moon. Have we all heard this? Trying to grasp the concept of eternity. There's a little bird that I'm probably going to get this really wrong, and Father Slaver is going to be very angry. But there's a little bird that flies to the moon. I'm just going to abbreviate it, Father. I'm not going to get into too much details. A little bird that flies to the moon. I think it takes a few years to get there, and a few years back. Sorry. But there's this mountain on the moon. And every time the bird arrives, it brushes the mountain with its wing. So it takes a few years to get there, a few years to get back. And every time it gets there, it brushes the mountain with, the, with its wing and it comes back. Now, by the time it wears down that mountain with its wing is one second of eternity. It's a long time. You know, in, in the Psalms, David, King David says, what is man's life? Seventy years, eighty for the strong, there's really no comparison. Our suffering here ends at death. And it will either end in eternal happiness with God or eternal damnation. 
I'm going to quote a verse from Scripture here, just so we can understand a bit more. In the Book of Wisdom, this is a very relevant quote for us. The world sees nothing but the pains they endure. They themselves have eyes only for what is immortal. So light their suffering, so great the gain they win. So light their sufferings, so great. I mean, if you if you wake, if you're born, the moment you're born to the moment you die, you die, every single second of your life is in absolute pain. It's still little, tiny, minute compared to what awaits. Another quote. This is from St. Paul's letter to the Romans. We are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. If you ever have a chance to read about life of St. Paul, he would know he went through a lot. And here he is, not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Of course, if after death we end up down there, I can't point down there, but you know what I mean, down there. If you do end up down there, then that is absolute unmitigated suffering. That suffering. I'm going to move on now. Oh, I'm running out of time. God's gift of love. This is, if you would, the culmination of this talk tonight. Suffering on earth is not an evil. I mentioned before that if you end up down there, that's evil. But suffering on earth is not evil. It can be a source of great good. It's actually a gift that God gives us. And it's a gift that he gives us because he loves us. Hence the title of the talk, Suffering, a gift of God's love. In St. Matthew's Gospel in chapter 5, when our Lord is, the, the, if you've heard of the Beatitudes, it, just mention a few of them here in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who suffer persecution in the cause of right. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are you when you are when you are when people revile you and persecute you and speak all manner of evil against you falsely because of me. Be glad and light-hearted, for a rich reward awaits you in heaven. I'm presenting you with these quotes. I just want you to be almost saturated with scripture and its theme that and its theme of this temporal existence, this the puny, the suffering and the pain that we're going to experience here is really again nothing. What awaits us is far greater and the happiness will overshadow it completely. In what ways can suffering be a good in what way can we make the claim that suffering is actually a gift of God? Well, there's five points I want to go through. The first, suffering helps us make up for sins. Right? Mentioned earlier, suffering entered into the life of mankind as a punishment for original sins, for the original sin of our first parents. Thereafter, as I've just showed you from Scripture, Man must be punished by God for his personal sins as well. First point I mentioned. At the dawn, I'm just going to read a bit here, and just bear with me and I'll get back to it. At the dawn of civilization, when Cain killed his brother Abel, he was punished by God, who told him that the ground he tilled would no longer yield fruit, and that he would be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. Genesis chapter 4 verse 12. The need for sin to be punished 
is, is clear in, in, in natural justice. You do something wrong, you're punished for it. That applies, again, to, to our relationship with God. I mean, I mentioned earlier that we even see it in our own legal systems. You know, it, it applies also somewhat between our relationship with God. We sin, we commit sin, then we are punished for it. The punishment that we undergo as a consequence, if you would, of our sin, traditionally is called temporal punishment. We uh, call it temporal punishment to distinguish it from eternal punishment, which is obviously suffering in hell. All sins have as, as their consequence the incurring of a certain amount of temporal punishment. This punishment must be undergone before we can enter heaven. Right? So every sin incurs temporal punishment. This temporal punishment must be experienced. We must receive it. We can, I'm not going to say get out of it, because we never do get out of it, but there, we can make up, we can satisfy this temporal punishment by penance, indulgences, acts of mercy. There are ways in which we can satisfy this punishment because of our sin. If we die, if we die in the friendship of God, in the state of grace, but we yet haven't made up, haven't undergone this temporal punishment, that's where purgatory comes in. A place where we can satisfy the punishment due to our sins before we can enter into heaven. Every time I give a talk, I cannot but mention a few quotes from the Baltimore Catechism. I just absolutely love that book. It's simple, it's concise, and it's like a bombing knocker on your head. Smack bang. So I'm going to mention a bit, just two quotes from the Baltimore Catechism, just to sort of explain what I mean by temporal punishment. Question 143 in the Baltimore Catechism. Why does God require temporal punishment as a satisfaction for sin? God requires a temporal punishment as a satisfaction for sin to teach us the great evil of sin and to prevent us from failing again. Now, another question, question 220. In the sacrament of penance, the sinner is saved from the eternal punishment. When we commit a mortal sin, and if we die and unrepentant of that mortal sin, we go to hell. I'm not going to emphasize that, but teachings of the church are that if we die in unrepentant mortal sin, we cannot enter heaven. Confession, sacrament of penance, frees us from that eternal punishment. I'm going to continue the quote. And from part, confession also frees us from part of the temporal punishment. But although the sins have been forgiven, the sinner must make satisfaction to God for the insult of the sins. We need to make up for our sins. It's not just a matter of, you know, I shot someone go to confession and everything's okay. No. I'm freed from the eternal punishment, but I still need to make up for my sin. Uh, belief in the, the... A lot of people say, well, uh, purgatory, that's so Catholic. Well, and it's an invention of the medieval ages of the church. Well, it's, I'm just going to mention one church father here just to tell you that the teaching of purification after death, is not an invention of the medieval ages. It's actually a very... I'll quote here from a 6th century saint, Saint Isidore of Seville. He writes, To offer the sacrifice for the repose of the faithful departed is a custom observed throughout the world. For this reason we believe it as 
we believe it is a custom taught by the apostles themselves. It's a 6th century saint. So, if you ever get people who challenge your belief that we can somehow be purified after death in purgatory, just look to the church fathers and you'll see that it's actually a teaching of the church since the very beginning. This temporal punishment, as I mentioned, can be undergone in many ways. If we look at the Old Testament, it's full of references, you know, people wearing sackcloth, ashes as penance, all the acts of mercy, good deeds, and these are ways for which we can satisfy this punishment. Now you probably think to yourself, well, I'm here to learn about suffering. Why is he teaching me about temporal punishment and this and that? Well, I'll go back to the original point. Suffering helps us to make up for sins. So I'm not sidetracking you. It was actually a purpose. When we suffer, it helps us to make up for these sins, to satisfy the punishment due to our sins. Huh? Valuable? Oh, very valuable. Right. It's Almighty God knows that we would pref- it's better for us to suffer in this life for, if you would, the whole thing than to spend a single second in purgatory. If you ever want to think to yourself, oh, well, please, I don't want to suffer anymore. Let me just do it after I die in purgatory. Well, you don't want that. You don't want that at all because the sufferings of purgatory are severe. Very. God, in His infinite love, allows us to make up for these sins on earth through our own suffering when embraced with love. Second point. Suffering unites the sufferer with Jesus more closely. We all know that Christ is near to each and every one of the, each and every person. We know that. But to the sufferer, he is especially near. When, in the scriptures, Jesus invites us to come close to him through the cross. Uh, Again, I'll quote here from St. Matthew's Gospel. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Our Lord wants us to unite ourselves to his sufferings, to unite our own sufferings to his own. He's telling us that that is the way to follow him. Not to avoid it or wimp out, but that is the path he wants us to take. St. Paul gives us a witness of his own identification with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, he says. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. By taking his cross, by willingly accepting suffering, (coughs) the sufferer has the consolation of knowing that he is more closely united to Christ. I sometimes think to myself, if suffering has that effect, if suffering unites me so closely, so intimately to my Lord, how can it be a bad thing? Or how can anyone not want it? How could anyone dare to avoid it by means such as euthanasia or, or you know, illegal drugs or whatever the case may be? I want to read to you a abstract that was found in a magazine. You've got to understand, it takes a certain amount of faith to appreciate the concepts I'm placing before you. you know, to willingly love suffering, to accept it and to know that it unites you to our Lord. But I want to read this to you because when I read this, it's just... It's about a lady who had... Uh, who had cancer. Her name was Maureen Cronin. She writes, The pain in my chest is crushing me, as the pain crushed you as you struggled 
to breathe while you, you hung on the cross. You are in my pain. I am in yours. We are one, my God and I. What else can I ever ask for? In this you have given me proof of your love. This lady had lung cancer. The pain she felt towards the end was excruciating. I mean, I hope we never experience it. But I recently had a slight case of pneumonia on my chest. And it felt like hell. It was the most painful thing I ever... It was just a little bit of water in the corner of my lung. I would not imagine what it must feel like to have a fully developed tumour in your lung. It must be painful. And what does this lady says? You have given me proof of your love. Yeah, a lot of people have this thing that, oh, he's rich, he has money. God must really love him. And here's this lady saying, the excruciating pain in my chest by my cancer is proof of your love. If suffering can do that to a person, if a suffering can unite a person to Christ in such a way, again, I take back, I go back to the point, how can it be anything but a gift of God's love? I want to again read, an, it's, it's good to hear about uh, real life stories that, that occur because they tend to bring to life you know, a bunch of words by a good looking chap at the front. So, it's, it, it, I'll read this out to you. I've, I chose these particularly because they really emphasise what I'm tr- the, the point I'm trying to bring across. Again, I'm not here trying to wow you with intellectualism. This is not the kind of topic where you know you can quote church fathers and scriptures. This is a really subjective topic. While every aspect of our faith is beautiful and in, 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 in profound, when it comes to suffering, it's kind of on a different level. It's a thing that cuts deep, really deep. And I'll just read this out to you. On the night of the earthquake, our Lord visited us because it is the word of God that when one is close to the cross, to suffering, to pain, he is close to Jesus. After this great earthquake, I went. I spent the whole night searching through the ruins of my house. I found my two sons and my two daughters. The sons were alive, the daughters were dead. Then I got down on my knees in the midst of, my, of the rubble and prayed the prayer of Holy Job. Lord, you gave me two daughters as the fruit of a holy marriage. I give back to you the souls because I know that what you want is always for the best. I mentioned earlier, God commits certain evils that we that from it he draws a greater good. Now again, it takes faith. We can't always see what the good is. We need only trust that there will be a good. We might not even see it in our own lifetime. But God only permits evil to draw a greater good. So we shouldn't be concerned about looking for the good, rather simply knowing that from this a greater good will occur. I'll move on to the fourth point. I'm running behind schedule. Sorry, I'll let... I may have to rush through this. Suffering is a manifestation of God's love. This is the third point. I mentioned earlier that the statement that suffering being a manifestation of God's love can be somewhat disturbingly weird, even sadistic. Well, he himself, in, in the scriptures, God himself, says this. Read, I'm going to read this out from the book of Proverbs. For the Lord disciplines him whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
Another quote from the St. Paul's letter to the Hebrews. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Suffering. When we, sorry, no, that. When we suffer, God is teaching us. God is refining us. God is preparing us to become more human. The dignity of man is a very sublime thing. We are created by God in the image of God. We have a tendency to appreciate, uh, be comfortable in mediocrity. Not to achieve what we should be as human beings. Suffering has a way of refining us, perfecting us. It is God's love and His allowing us to suffer that does this. Many of the saints were told by God that they would have much to suffer on His account. And from the early martyrs to the present day, many have borne great sufferings. If you want to read the lives of the saints, if you can, well, you probably can, but you will hardly see any story where a saint did not suffer. And in some cases, whoa, just reading it, you get a bit edgy. Suffering is part and parcel of every single person who ever desired perfection. Have we all heard of the curé of our St. John Vianney? I'm going to read a quote from him. You wonder why God, who is goodness, goodness itself, allows us to suffer. But what would you think of a doctor who lost his patient because he was afraid to give him the necessary but unpleasant treatment? Think to yourself, a little baby needs to get immunised. Doesn't. If it doesn't, chances are the child won't live. What's a child going to think when it sees the massive needle? It's not going to be happy. (laughs) But what if a doctor turns around and says, oh, you know, I really don't want to upset the child. Don't worry about it. He's not a very good doctor. I would definitely not recommend anyone take their kids to that doctor. The doctor must give the needle. Now, the child is not going to recognise immediately that what's happening is actually for its, for its benefit. Right? The doctor knows better. Well, with our relationship with God, it's a similar thing. We don't always know what's... Actually, we hardly ever know what's good for us. God knows. And so he treats us according to what he thinks is good for us, not what we think is good for us. Because oftentimes what we think is good for us, it's not what he... Not what he thinks is good. It's, I mean, no, I'm probably just using a bit of weird words here, but it's true. It takes faith to understand that God knows more than us. We should get off our high school sometime and this sense of invincibility that we always know what's best is not always the case. Most likely it never is. Faith. That's the key. I'll move on to point four. Suffering can be offered up to others. I've also almost done. I mentioned before that we can make up for our sins with suffering. We can satisfy the temporal punishment due to our sins. Well, we can also offer to other people or for other causes. For example, if if I experience a certain amount of suffering, I and I have my brother and I do an exam very important life-changing exam, I can offer my suffering for his intention of doing well. So it's a charitable, it gives us a mean of being charitable. I was going to mention a few quotes here, but I'm just going to skip on to point five. Suffering benefits those who care for sufferers. You normally find health workers have a very strong character about them very deep sense of humility. Health workers who hang around terminally ill patients, 
people who suffer, they tend to be much more in touch with reality than people who are in lofty CEO positions, if you would. I want to read one quote. We all, again, familiar with Mother, Blessed Mother Teresa. Oh, lost the point. Thanks. One day they brought a man from the streets, and half his body was all eaten up. Worms were crawling all over the body, and nobody could stand near him. Sorry about this, guys. And nobody can stand near him. The odour was so great. So I went to clean some of, the, some of the worms from his body. He looked at me and then asked me, Why do you do this? Everybody has given me away. Why do you do this? Why do you come near me? I love you, I said. I love you and Jesus loves you. This is Mother Teresa kneeling down in the streets of probably New Delhi, some, Delhi somewhere, on the streets where millions of people have walked past this guy with worms all over his body. She kneels down and helps him. You're not going to get more humble. So, I think I'm going to stop somewhere there. I'm just going to conclude. I hope and I know this has been an on-off talk and I've been stumbling a lot with my words, but there is really a lot to speak about when it comes to this topic. But again, you really don't want to ruin it with overabundance of quotes, and, which I probably have done anyway. But I hope that you can appreciate the fact that A, value has, there is absolute value in suffering, an eternal value in suffering, and that there is a meaning for it. So if you suffer or you know somebody who suffers, you should be encouraged, if you would, excited by the fact that this is not going to go to waste. This is redemptive suffering. That it's going to contribute to something far greater than what my simple mind can possibly comprehend. That the results of what I go through now will be infinitely more than the pain I need to endure. I'm going to go back to the original question. Remember I asked you to keep that question in mind, why do we have crucifixes in our church constantly affixed? I'm going to read one last quote from the Scriptures. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul preaches Christ crucified, not just risen. Catholic spirituality focuses on the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice of Christ is the only means, the only path to the resurrection. You can't play hopscotch and go straight to the resurrection. The path to the resurrection is the crucified Christ. Again, it is the greatest sign of God's love. Only by loving the crucified Christ can we ultimately appreciate the value of suffering and appreciate and love it. No suffering is redemptive unless it is loved. Now, I know it's a difficult concept. How can I love something that's, well, depending on how painful it is, but how can I possibly love suffering and pain? Well, if you look at the crucifix and you love Christ, then by default you love His passion. You love His, his sufferings, His sacrifices, which He underwent for you. If He showed you his ultimate love by suffering. If you flip it around, how are we, or how does he expect us to show our love for him? It's the same way. Same way. Christ expects us to show, to prove our love 
by sacrifice, by suffering. We can show in a sing, in bearing and loving sacrifice, suffer, sorry, loving suffering, if one hour of suffering would be enough to, to prove your love for God, then if you would, you know, probably, I don't know, doing the greatest acts of mercy or charity, loving your suffering for the sake of Him is the greatest way you can prove your love for Him. We can go through a lot of temptations in life. And when it comes to suffering, we kind of we can also have the mentality of throwing in the towel, giving up. Do you remember in the scriptures, or have you read in the scriptures, when our Lord first brought forth the doctrine of you must eat my flesh and drink my blood to have life in you. And everyone walked away, saying this is intolerable. Who can tolerate this? And then the apostles turn around and say, Lord, say something. People are leaving. And what does our Lord say to them? He says, do you want to leave as well? Now there's a point here, the reason I mention that, because what does St. Peter say to our Lord once he says that? Lord, where else can we go? There's a bit more to it, but just focus on those. Lord, where else can we go? You are the Christ. When we suffer and we feel tempted to just completely discard and give up and, if you would, seek things that are immoral, euthanasia, illegal, excessive drugs, we should remember that. If we give, where else are we going to go? Christ is there. He wants us to love what we go through for His sake. Because He wants us to be perfect. God never created anyone for the purpose of being in hell. God wants the redemption of everybody. And so, He inflicts on us suffering to perfect us, to prepare us to enter into heaven. I think I can sum this up. We need to persevere and we need to endure. Always remember, God cannot lie. His promise is always assured. Again, and this is I'm going to end it on this. First Peter chapter five verse ten. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore establish and strengthen you. Hope that helped. Thank you. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Anthony Suka. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.